I imagine we probably all have those special people for whom we feel an extra measure of concern in life. Perhaps in your case, it's a parent, a child, maybe a longtime friend or coworker. My greatest spiritual burden is for my lost loved ones. Undoubtedly, you also have one or more people in your life who are so entrenched in a habit, an unhealthy attitude, or an otherwise destructive way of living that you can't imagine what it will take for them to be delivered. Well, in the chapters of Exodus in this lesson, we repeatedly read of God's concern for the enslaved Israelites. Since he's omnipotent, that's all-powerful, we may wonder, why didn't he protect his people from slavery in Egypt? The answer to that question is really beyond the scope of this lesson. It's the question of why God allows evil in the world at all. Some suggest the answer has to do with allowing us free will. However, the main point here is that We just can't read these chapters without noting God's deep love and concern for the troubles of his people. Now, Israel's exodus from Egypt is a historical event. The Bible often uses such real historical events to portray greater realities. The Israelites' enslavement in Egypt and God's great concern and action to deliver them portrays the greater reality of the enslavement of all humanity to sin, God's deep concern for us, and his institution of a rescue plan in the person of Jesus Christ, who died to save us. God is passionate about rescuing sinners. Exodus 3.8 records his resolve, So I have come down to rescue them. The first chapters of Exodus describe the birth and call of Moses as God's instrument in accomplishing Israel's deliverance from bondage to Egypt in Egypt. Moses' personal story dominates this part of the narrative. In the framework of God's greater plan of redemption, Moses' birth and call signify the initiation of God's plan to rescue the Israelites, and it reminds us that we, too, have a deliverer who is passionate about rescuing his people. Well, let's begin by looking at Moses' preparation by God in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. And the first thing we learn is that while the 70 members of Jacob's family who entered Egypt all died there. Their descendants had greatly multiplied. A new pharaoh with a different attitude toward the Hebrews, or Israelites, had come into power since the time of Joseph, and he felt threatened by their presence. Now, most scholars believe that the Israelites lived in Egypt through the duration of a unique period in Egypt's history, when a group of foreigners, the Hyksos people, had overrun and ruled northern Egypt. The expulsion of the Hyksos was greatly celebrated in Egyptian history. It was a time in which sentiment against foreigners would have been strong. And so this helps us understand why the new Egyptian pharaoh 
would have had a very different attitude than previous pharaohs toward the Israelites' presence. They were foreigners in his land. So the new king began a program to attempt to deal with what he perceived to be a serious problem. Hoping to make the Israelites' lives difficult enough to slow down or even stop their population from growing, Pharaoh first forced them into heavy oppression through slave labor. However, verse 12 tells us that the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. When Pharaoh's first plan didn't succeed, he commanded the two overseers of the Hebrew midwives to make sure that none of the male Hebrew babies survived beyond birth. But these two women, Shifra and Pua, feared God and refused to obey the king's orders. After his first two plans failed, Pharaoh took an even more drastic measure. He gave an order that all of his people, not only the midwives, were responsible for killing the male Hebrew babies, only allowing the girls to live. By the time we arrive at the end of this first chapter, it's clear to us that there are two competing agendas here. God's program was to make Abraham's descendants numerous, as he'd promised. The agenda of God's enemies was to keep this from happening. And this was the situation into which baby Moses was born. Now, Moses' parents were from the tribe of Levi. Hebrews 11.23 tells us about them. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Apparently, Moses' parents saw something in their infant son that inspired them to believe he was really unusual. So they hid him in a basket made to float and placing it among the reeds just off the bank of the Nile River, waited. There, an Egyptian princess discovered the baby, and she offered to pay Moses' mother to nurse him for her. Moses' mother probably nursed him for at least three to four years, as was customary. Now, because of high infant mortality rates in ancient cultures, adopted children were not given to their adoptive parents until after they were weaned. And this is very interesting because it would have given Moses' parents the opportunity to influence him during his most formative years. Surely they trained him according to their faith. Even after he was taken to the palace, Moses may very well have remained in contact with his family of origin. Hebrews 11 and Acts 7.22 give the only biblical commentaries on the roughly 35 to 36 years that Moses lived in Pharaoh's palace after he was weaned. Acts says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. According to several reliable ancient historians, Pharaoh had no son or heir and Moses was being groomed for the throne. Now, whether or not that was the case, he certainly would have been raised as any son of an Egyptian princess with all the privilege of royalty. One such privilege would have been 
the Egyptian tutoring. The Temple of the Sun at Heliopolis has been excavated by archaeologists and shown to be the Oxford of the ancient world. As many as 10,000 upper-class youths from Egypt and other countries were educated there, and they were instructed in sciences, medicine, mathematics, architecture, music, astronomy, chemistry, theology, philosophy, and law. Can you believe it? In addition to the Hebrew language, Moses would have spoken Akkadian, the common commercial language of the day, and he would have known hieroglyphics. As a male member of Pharaoh's family, Moses would also have received advanced military training. In fact, historians claim that by the time Moses was 30, he led the Egyptian army in an incredible victory over the Ethiopians. Surely Moses was a highly qualified and experienced leader. And one might assume, I I believe one would assume, that a person with the kind of privilege Moses enjoyed as a prince of Egypt would have been eager to identify himself as such. Not so. Instead, according to Hebrews 11, Moses gladly aligned himself with the despised and persecuted Hebrew people. Acts 7.25 reveals an interesting insight. Moses thought his kinsmen would recognize him as their deliverer. In a rash moment, he expressed his deep anger over the mistreatment of his people by murdering one of their abusive Egyptian overlords. Apparently, Moses expected to be thanked, but instead, the Hebrews confronted, chastised, and rejected him. Well, because of his power and knowledge, Moses' flagrant display of disloyalty to Egypt and the throne by this murder posed a serious threat to Pharaoh. Once he learned of the murder and knew how far Moses would go to aid the Hebrews, He wanted Moses dead. As a result, Moses wisely fled to Midian. There he married Zipporah, the daughter of a Midianite priest, and spent 40 long years as a shepherd in the Arabian desert. But the desert surely became God's schoolhouse, a further training ground to prepare Moses for what lay ahead. Well, we arrive at the end of Exodus 2, aware that despite God's concern for Israel, he did not immediately put an end to their enslavement. Neither did he seem to be in a hurry to equip Moses. From our perspective, living within the limits of time, God often seems slow to accomplish his purposes. Have you found that to be the case, that he seems slow at times to you to accomplish his purposes? In fact, later we learn that Israel had been in Egypt for 430 years, and Moses was 80 years old before God called him to do the job. This seems hard to understand, considering God's concern for them. Yet from Genesis 15, 16, we understand that he was being patient with the exceedingly wicked Canaanites, giving them ample opportunity to repent before he brought judgment on them and gave their land to Israel. 
You see, God considers what's very best and loving in a way that we just can't always understand because he alone knows everything. Just as Moses remained in the desert for an extended period of time, few believers escape a desert experience. I've certainly had them. We may think of desert experiences as any time, any period of time in which we feel spiritually dry or that we've been removed from a place, geographically or circumstantially, from a place of fruitfulness where God was using us to have a spiritual impact on others. Furthermore, when we're in the desert, God doesn't seem to be in a hurry to change these circumstances. Some of us will feel unable to see God working in and through us at all during this season. We feel we've entered a fiery trial when we're in the desert. A few may even begin to question God's existence or we may quickly recognize it as a God-appointed season for hearing his voice. But in either case, we probably also experience some degree of underlying depression, loneliness, and sorrow. In truth, a desert experience is a place of preparation by God for his service. You know, we always have the choice of becoming embittered by our circumstances or accepting them, humbling ourselves and learning all we can. And in my own experience, if we wait patiently on God and ask him to teach us the lessons he wants us to learn, we will learn a great deal about ourselves and about him during our desert experiences. Think about Moses as a shepherd He learned about faithfulness in small tasks and about patience while leading the weak, qualities he definitely used later in leading the Israelites. Moses also became familiar with the desert. Little did he know that he would spend most of the last 40 years of his life as a desert guide. Most importantly, Moses learned humility. Before his desert experience, He'd felt qualified to rescue Israel. After 40 years in obscurity, that self-confidence dissolved. You see, every work of eternal value must be accomplished in God's strength, not our own. That's a lesson we've got to learn. Might you currently be living in the desert? My friend, God uses these experiences to teach us practical skills, to instill character in us, and to remove sin from our lives. And he's not in a hurry. God is thorough and exacting in his work. He may seem absent to you, but he never is. He is deeply concerned for you at all times. Well, at the beginning of Exodus 3, Moses seemed to be experiencing a rather ordinary day tending his father-in-law's flock in the desert when suddenly his life changed. He was near Horeb, an alternate name for Mount Sinai, 
when he saw a burning bush. Now, this wouldn't have been uncommon in the heat of the desert. What was unusual was that, although on fire, the bush wasn't being consumed. Drawing near to examine the curious sight, Moses heard a voice calling within the bu- from within the bush calling his name. We are told the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses within the flames of the bush. Now, this isn't the first biblical mention of the angel of the Lord. He'd also appeared to Abraham, to Hagar, and to Jacob. Who is this mysterious angel? Although his words are attributed to the Lord, it certainly seems he was more than just a mouthpiece, more than one of God's created angels. A clue within Exodus 3 is found in the words, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Nowhere does the Bible indicate that angels make things holy, or that they are holy, as God is. In Genesis, Hagar and Jacob identified this angel as the Lord himself. Furthermore, here in in Exodus 3 and elsewhere, fire is a symbol of God's presence. And finally, when the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The appearance of God in a physical form is called a theophany. The only person of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stated in Scripture as having put on flesh is the second person, Jesus Christ. And so for this reason, many believe the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a manifestation in the flesh before he was born through Mary, or a Christophany. After appearing, identifying himself, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, expressed his concern for the suffering Israelites and reaffirmed his promise to bring them to the land he promised them. The Lord then commissioned Moses for his new role. So now go, verse 10, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses' first reaction was, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He obviously wasn't the same self-assured man he'd who'd once believed that the Hebrews would recognize him as their God-appointed deliverer. In fact, he altogether seemed to lack confidence that he was even a suitable candidate. The Lord assured Moses that he would be with him. Moses' second concern was that the Israelites would ask him the name of the God who sent him. The Egyptians, like all the nations around them, believed in many gods. And after 400 years, the Israelites' knowledge of the God of their fathers was at the very least at risk of being distorted and at the very worst on the verge of being lost. Who was this God who assured their release from Egypt? Moses' request for God's name is important because the Israelites believed that the name reflected an individual's essence. And God answered by stating, I am 
who I am. In the next verse, he called himself the Lord. The Hebrew word is Yahweh. We spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H. And it became the proper personal name by which Israel identified God. Because of this passage, the name Yahweh is closely tied to God's identification as I am who I am. This name, Yahweh, is sometimes called the Tetragrammaton, since in Hebrew, Yahweh only consists of four letters, our consonants, Y-H-W-H. Throughout the centuries, Jews refused to pronounce these letters, believing the name to be too sacred to speak out loud. So they substituted another word, their word, their gen- word that has a gen- means Lord in a general sense, and that's the word Adonai. Some older English translations of the Bible, such as the King James Version, write the name Yahweh as Jehovah. Although scholars have debated the meaning of I am who I am for centuries, such a name, at the very least, emphasized God's unchanging, self-existent nature. The God of Israel's forefathers covenanted to give them the land of Canaan. He was faithful, he is faithful, and he would be faithful. And readers of the New Testament know that Jesus said, I am identifying himself as God. Well, next in chapter four, Moses said he was afraid the Israelites wouldn't believe him. Therefore, God gave Moses three supernatural signs as validation that he was indeed God's messenger. First, the ability to transform a staff into a snake. Second, the ability to make his own hand leprous and then clean again. And third, the ability to turn water from the Nile into blood. All three of these signs reflected God's supreme power over things the Egyptians believed represented power and life. Moses' fourth and subsequent concerns begin to sound more like objections. Moses next said he was slow of speech. Kind of seems he was downplaying his abilities since Acts 7 states Moses was powerful in speech. But let's remember, 40 years of shepherding in obscurity, they'd certainly humbled him. God answered this concern of Moses about his eloquence by reminding him that he's the creator of human mouths and that he would go with Moses and teach him what to say. Moses' final objection, yikes, made God angry. Pardon your servant, Lord, he said. Please send someone else. Perhaps Moses initially hesitated out of fear, but now he was displaying stubborn disobedience, and this made God angry. God agreed to allow Moses' brother Aaron to be his mouthpiece. But you know, Moses probably lived to regret this arrangement because later Aaron led the Israelites into idolatry and even later he challenged Moses' authority. 
Although God called Moses, Moses still sought his father-in-law's blessing in taking on this new role. Jethro, also known as Reuel, you'll see both names for this man, he granted Moses' request. So Moses left for Egypt along with his wife and sons. But now we read that along the way, God threatened to kill him until Zipporah circumcised their son. We're not told which of the two sons. Now, let's be honest. This is a strange passage. The best suggestion may be that Moses became deathly ill and his wife somehow recognized her husband's illness as resulting from their failure to circumcise their sons, something God had required of all Abraham's male descendants. Based on Zipporah's comment about Moses being a bridegroom of blood to her, she must have found circumcision extremely repulsive. But in order to save her husband's life, she quickly circumcised her son, commenting with disgust on what was required of her as the wife of a Hebrew. It seems that God was uncovering an area of private neglect in Moses' family. You see, if Moses was going to lead God's people, he surely would have had to have his own house in order before God. In Exodus 3 and 4, then, we see that God was patient with Moses, his, with Moses' ignorance and self-doubt, but God was unwilling to allow him to be disobedient to his clear instructions, his instructions about leading Israel and, and regarding circumcision. Moses' thinking had to change so that he could begin to see things from God's perspective. Those involved in God's ongoing rescue mission learned to see life from his perspective. That's our second principle. Those involved in God's ongoing rescue mission learned to see life from his perspective. God's rescue mission is ongoing. Once he's saved us, we're commissioned to join him in rescuing others. Now, we are all born self-centered. Considering God's concerns and plans first is unnatural to us, but it's an important part of becoming a person God can use. We must learn to see life from God's perspective, think his thoughts, and take his priorities as our own. These are marks of a maturing believer. You probably have family members or other people in your life about whom you can often predict what they might think or say or feel. Let me ask you, how did that happen? It happened because you've spent a great deal of time with them. Since Moses' parents were people of faith, they surely passed on what they knew about God to Moses but nothing they told him could equip him for God's service in the way that spending time in God's presence would. One of the things that will become obvious in our study and future lessons is how transformative it was for Moses to spend time in God's presence. When Moses first encountered God, his thoughts were focused entirely on his own fears and doubts. But that changed. 
How do believers today learn to see life from God's perspective, you might ask? Well, the Bible is the place where we become familiar with God's perspective and plans. And the more time we spend in Bible reading and in prayer, the more natural it becomes to think God's thoughts and to make His priorities our own. As I work on this Bible study, I continue to know God more and more because it keeps me in His Word. But I must also remind myself to make sure I'm committing to time in prayer, talking with Him about what I'm learning, considering how my perspective needs adjusting, and asking Him to show me how to make His priorities my own each day. That's my goal. But I admit I often fall short, rushing my conversations with God and forgetting that all the time in the world won't be enough to enable me to accomplish anything worthwhile unless I'm going in God's strength and according to His plans. What do you need to start seeing from God's perspective? A loss of income? A mundane task? A challenging assignment? Who do you need to start seeing from God's perspective? An impossible boss? A difficult neighbor? A meddling in-law? Moses was learning to put his personal problems in perspective with God's interests and God's adequacy. Once he did that, Moses was finally ready to meet with Pharaoh. Now Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and gave him the Lord's instruction, Let my people go. Just as the Lord had told Moses, Pharaoh refused to allow the journey. He replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, as a pagan, it's true that Pharaoh didn't know God. It's also true that he may have concluded from Israel's vulnerable position that her God was impotent. Furthermore, since the Egyptians believed Pharaoh himself was a God, his words may have represented a challenge to this God of Israel. So we begin to understand how the plagues would have been instructive for Pharaoh answering his question, who is the Lord, and meeting his challenge. In great frustration, Moses pled with the Lord, boldly pouring out his trouble. He asked the Lord why he was sent to Pharaoh, since it had only resulted in more trouble for the Israelites. The Lord explained to Moses that the method he was using would set the stage for a powerful display of his wonders. Now, the purpose of the genealogy that's inserted in the narrative in chapter 6 here is to show the pedigree of Moses and Aaron. It identifies them precisely because of their important positions. And what's most important is that they were both descendants of Israel, that is of Jacob, and in particular of Israel's son, Levi. The statement later in chapter 12, verse 40, that Israel had been in Egypt 430 years, it's a little difficult to reconcile with only four listed generations here in Exodus 6. The number of generations seems 
far too few. However, remember that genealogies in the Old Testament are often selective. In other words, those called fathers are sometimes forefathers. They could be grandfathers or even great-grandfathers. And then in verses 28 of chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 7, we find a summary for us of what we've learned up to this point. We've learned a lot of important things, and Moses summarizes it all for us before moving on to tell us about the plagues God sent and about Israel's departure from Egypt. So overall, in chapters 5 and 6 and the opening verses of chapter 7, we see that when Moses delivered God's message to Pharaoh, the Israelites' troubles intensified. So our third principle is that God's enemy resists conceding defeat. He resists conceding defeat. Remember that earlier in this discussion, I mentioned the competing agendas of God and Pharaoh. The Bible teaches that a very real war is being waged, although invisible to us, between God's forces and those of his enemy, Satan. The battleground is the world here in which we live. While we don't see these spiritual forces with our own eyes, we can often see the results of the conflict. Not only are the heavenly armies of angels involved in this battle, God's people are engaged. And sometimes Satan and his demons work through cooperating evil human agents. In subsequent chapters in Exodus, we'll see that Pharaoh became such an individual. Wherever God's at work, the enemy will not yield to defeat without putting up a good fight. Satan knows that his doom was sealed when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Hallelujah! He knows his destruction has been assured. But... Just as Pharaoh resisted, our enemy, the devil, fights, determined to steal and kill and destroy all he can and keep people in bondage. So for this reason, we shouldn't be surprised that when God's at work in our family, in our church, or our community, our difficulties may seem to intensify. Do your struggles seem to be intensifying right now? The enemy isn't willing to easily relinquish any territory he's previously held. And he's almost certain to test your commitment to study God's word this year. Don't be surprised by all the obstacles that arise to your daily preparation and your attendance. But rather than being discouraged over this, Increased trouble should be our signal to pray harder, to persevere in faith, expecting God's deliverance, and to enlist other believers to stand firm with us. The battle may be over at any moment. If Moses and the Israelites had been able to see into the future, they wouldn't have been so discouraged when their troubles intensified. So whether or not the battle you're facing is over quickly, remember our ultimate deliverance is assured. God is concerned. He's concerned for us 
and for those still lost in their sins. And he's done something about it. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came down to rescue us.